I'm Lisa Stone, and you're listening to Parenting Aces. Welcome to season 10 of the Parenting Aces podcast, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Lisa Stone, and we have another great episode for you this week. My guest is coming at us from across the proverbial pond, and I'll tell you more about him in just a sec. But before I do that, just a quick reminder, if you haven't become a premium member of Parenting Aces yet, we would love to have you join us. Not only do you get full access to all Parenting Aces content, but you also get complimentary quarterly consultations with me. So um, if you have questions about this whole parent journey with junior tennis and college recruiting and all that stuff, become a premium member and we'll talk you through all of your questions, all of your concerns. Also, our online shop is now active. We've got logoed merch. Uh, you can see the logo behind me and that's on all of our new merchandise and we'd love for you to go shop. Our premium members get free shipping in the continental US every day. So another perk of being a member of Parenting Aces. Um, now, let me tell you a little bit about this week's guest, Simon Wheatley. Simon has written a book and is on social media all the time promoting this notion of the sweet spot. What does that mean? It is where the parent-player-coach relationship intersect and finds that that perfect uh, organization between the three legs of the triangle that constitute a junior tennis player's kind of life in tennis, because we know not only does it take commitment from the player, but it also takes full-on commitment from the parent and the coach in order to help a junior player reach his or her full potential in the sport. And so we're going to be chatting with Simon about uh, his work. Uh, he has a book out, which I will share the link later, and that will be on the show notes. If you are listening to this podcast on one of the podcast apps, I urge you to go to parentingaces.com and check out the video version. You can also find it on our YouTube channel, and that way you can put a face to our voices. So without further ado, let me bring Simon Wheatley on the podcast. Simon, good morning. Well, whatever it is to you, <laughs> it's late afternoon there, I guess. It's yes, it is. It's 5 p.m. Well, thank you so much, Lisa, for inviting me on your very popular show. So, thank you. <laughs> popular, I don't know, um, but thank you for that. So, tell us exactly where you are today and um, what's the weather like and what's the COVID situation like where you are? Sure, yeah. Well, I'm in uh, Cheltenham, which is in the, the county of Gloucestershire in the UK. So, it's kind of halfway between Oxford and, and Birmingham about two hours you know, west of London. Um, the COVID situation is much better here in the UK. We did a lockdown January through to the end of March. Very strict lockdown. All schools were shut. No sport allowed to be played. So that's been a real impact on our juniors. And um, But we're in a much better place. We, we, our death toll is, is really reducing fast, which is fantastic. Our vaccination program is going very well. So, so we're in a much healthier place. And, of course, we're just slightly cautious about the summer variants when travel starts to occur yeah. again but, but yeah I'm you know I'm working for the LTA in, in London um, and I'm traveling around the UK and around the world doing a lot of work in in coach education uh, with parent education and in player development so um, I'm very lucky to work for the LTA for I think it's 14 years now in, wow. in various so um, but it's great to be here sharing some of my ideas around um, parent support and, and player development with you today Absolutely. And for those listeners who aren't familiar with LTA, that's Lawn Tennis Association, and it's the UK's version of our USTA. So it's the governing body for tennis in the UK. So Simon, I'm going to ask you the question that I always ask guests the first time I have them on the pod, which is, how did you get started in tennis? Great question. Um, well, to be honest with you, uh, I actually started playing tennis when I went to my secondary school. So when I was 11 years of age, in the summer between April and July. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hi, that's one of the sports with cricket that you have to play. Um, so, so I really? went. To, I, I started really, really late. So, um, and and yes, it was athletics, cricket, and tennis in my schools. Different schools are different. What sports they offer, um, and then you do a rotation each kind of half term on each of those sports. So I, I, I had a teacher at school that was fantastic, um, Phil Poulton and Ian Brett, two two great teachers actually. That, that that really made me fall in love with the sport. I then joined my local club, um, but I started very very late, so I, I was not a player at all. Um, my journey in tennis has been very very different because I grew up in a very little market town in South Shropshire, which is a very rural <laughs> back end of nowhere. Um, place beautiful old castle town but there wasn't really much going on for young people I was probably the only person in my town that really played tennis I was I was that 14 year old kid playing doubles with the 50 year old men um, I love it club it, it, which doesn't really happen as much anymore in the UK I'm not sure about the US in the US no. but it kind of died a little bit and um, but but I just fell in love with it and I so I was socialized a lot at the club through the older members so I was always old beyond my years then decided I need to get out of Ludlow. It's too small, small, small fry. Went to university to study sports development and psychology. Fell in love with that, but always knew I wanted to coach. Always knew I wanted to coach. In fact, when I was 15, I remember having to go on a work experience. You know, I don't know if you do that in the US, but you have two weeks work experience where you get out of the school into your local community and you, you shadow people in, in the local newspaper or the garage if you want to be involved with cars. I actually stayed at the school to teach tennis to the other students in the other year groups. So all of the children in the 15 year group. And I stayed because I loved coaching tennis. So it came to me very early, a passion for wanting to help others play tennis. Then I went to university, had an amazing time, met some great people who are my friends to, to this day, you know, 20 years later. And, and then I left university and decided, well, what do I want to do? Do I want to go into teaching physical education? Do I want further education in, in lecturing or or to do my master's or PhD? And that didn't interest me whatsoever. I wanted to coach. So I joined a very large tennis facility, the biggest one in the southwest of England. And I became the head of junior tennis and performance there, very young, 22. And then just coached some very good national players. And then I got offered a role to work with the Lawn Tennis Association and, and was kind of identified by them, uh, as I said, at a very young age and worked in their talent performance area then I worked in developing resources across performance and participation and then more recently got the role as head of performance coach education manager for the LTA which is essentially to look after the the qualification pathway for our performance stream of coaches across British tennis that's England Wales and Scotland so yeah so it's a bit of a a linear career I've gone from job to job to job in, in, in areas that I love to do so I've been incredibly lucky but I'm not a past player and I, and I haven't coached top players. That's the other thing I would say. I've not been, I've not coached Andy Murray and I've not coached Roger Federer. I don't have that story to tell. My job's always been winning through others. I've worked with dozens, hundreds, thousands of coaches now across the world, helping them to help their players to go on to be and work in the relationship with the parent and the trainer. So that's who, been my Who was your biggest influence in terms of your coaching philosophy? Who helped you develop your style and your approach to coaching tennis? Well, I think you know if we say there's the kind of who I am versus what I know, because what I've known, a lot of people have influenced what I know in tennis over the years. My own thinking and talking has helped me crystallize my thoughts on philosophies on tennis. But my exposure, to, you know, they say you become the sum of the 10 people you spend the most time with. And there is some truth in that. And 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 I have spent a lot of time with Louis Kaye, who has been our doubles guru here at the, at the, in, at the LTA. And uh, we spent 15 years working together, everything from workshops to writing to delivering qualifications. I've been lucky to, to have an apprenticeship from him that is second to none. Um, and I've been influenced a lot by his thinking. I was a young, as a young man 
going through college, university, I, I was influenced a lot by my by several college lecturers that were incredibly intelligent. They used to think about thinking to another level. They really told me not just to run with the crowd, but to challenge what people are telling you. Um, and that always stuck with me. And, and I, so I've always been a a nice, disagreeable person. <laughs> <laughs> if that's even a phrase but, but I'm, I certainly like not argue, I'm not argumentative so to speak per se but but I but I do like to say well maybe there's a different point of view here maybe there's another way of looking at the world in the situation and that's why I've always felt gravitated towards parents because a lot of coaches who don't have children are very quick to make judgments on parents behavior um, and we have to remember you know parents we're, we're from the animal kingdom and in, in the most of the animal world, um, mothers and fathers would kill to protect their cubs. Let's just remember that. They would kill to protect their cubs. So, uh, we we see things to... pretty close to that uh, sometimes with some parents. <laughs> yeah, I've seen it as well. And, 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 and therefore, that they're deeply, there's a deep instinctive drive to protect their, their, their cubs and, and to help them flourish and do whatever they can do to do that. And, and as coaches, you know, I've always felt, of course, aligned with coaches because I am a coach, but I've always wanted to support coaches because they stay around forever. Parents will come and go because their children grow old and they're out of the system for a lot of them. But but coaches are always there. But it's important to support coaches to be more sophisticated at dealing with difficult parents. Mm. But at the same time, it's to help parents be better versions of themselves in order to help their child flourish and to actually not relieve and to relieve some of the stress and become more tolerant to the the barriers that you're going to face in this pathway because it's really difficult um if if the performance pathway is the stream that you want to go down so so yeah that's that i've, I've had some major influences that you know and my family have been influential to me and, and people on youtube have been I, I used to as i present a lot i used to watch people on youtube that i thought were really good presenters so i was always inspired by barack obama who i thought could hold an audience so cleverly that yeah. I, I would just love to be able to speak as well as he does. So I used to watch when they paused, what gestures they did. So something. So just if I share something right away with you, in, in kind of an LP, there's something called words, music, and dance. So the words are the language you use. The music is just tone, you know, your your inclination, and then the dance is what you do with your body. So even now, when I raise my eyebrows to make a point, and the best people in the world really align the words, music, and dance. So I remember, I'll tell you a story. I remember once a, a colleague of mine, who I didn't particularly get on with very well, um, said to me, mm, Simon, yeah, actually, I was quite impressed with that speech you just did. So, and, and it always stuck with me that because what he was saying was actually really nice. But the music and the dance didn't match to the right. words that he was using. So the people that I think are that are really clever orators, that are great leaders, that, that really get it right when they intervene, because we don't always get it right when yeah. And we intervene yeah. all the time, thousands of times a day. We intervene with what we say, feedback, our conversations. To get that really right, to get the words, music, and dance aligned is a really tricky skill that I would really challenge all your readers and listeners and viewers to, to try and master and catch themselves doing it. Because we all have these blind spots that are, that are stopping us, preventing us being what we could be. Because you're not what you could be. And, yeah. and I think that's a really yeah. important point. Well, and I think it's interesting that you bring that up because as tennis parents, the challenge oftentimes is exactly what you're talking about. We may know the right words to say. We may be really good at saying the right words, but the music and the dance may be a complete disaster. And our kids read that very well. Um, they become very good at you know, kind of setting aside the words and and understanding that the body language and the tone of voice really have a greater impact than the words themselves. And it's, I, in my opinion, it's the most challenging part of being a tennis parent is mastering the body language and the tone of voice, not the words, because it's easy to memorize the correct words to use. Exactly. Yeah, you can learn the script, can't you? But but to, yeah. to, to behave in a way that's congruent with what you're saying and thinking and feeling is very difficult. And you're right. And it's not just the parents' expressions on the side of the court. That is important. That really is important. But I remember a, a female, a very good female player, tell me once that, that what she remembers from her childhood experience 
God, this is why we have to be so careful with as parents with what we do and say and think and feel because Jesus, it can stay with people forever. Oof, yeah. And, and, and this female is an older person now. She said when she was 13, 14, 15, she remembers very vividly being in the car with the mum driving home. And, I knew and you mom, were going to say this. I knew you were going to talk. It is. <laughs> and she used to say it to be something quite. I said, well, well, what did she used to say to you? She said, no, no, Simon, didn't say anything. Silence. Silence the whole way home. And I thought, wow, that's that's a pretty difficult thing to deal with if you're a teenager and going through adolescence when you're not knowing actually what your parents thinking of it. No expression, no words, no dance. So, oh, my God, you can imagine the paranoia through that young girl's mind thinking, does my parent hate me? Have I let them down? The money they spent? And, and, you know, it, and it catastrophizes to things that we can't even begin to imagine has a long-lasting impact in a negative way. Um, with a child, Look, I'm not saying it's easy. Because, you know, I'm a parent and um, to a very young child, and and I, I probably will make many errors that we've all made. But I'm really trying to catch myself before that on that cliff edge before I make it, in order to to pull myself back. And and essentially, what I really believe the role of the coach and the parent is to improve the tennis experience for their athletes, mm. the child. It, they have a responsibility. For the, the talent development, the coach has the responsibility to make the talent develop to, to its maximum. But the parent has a, a, a wider responsibility, often 22 hours a day, the coach, the parent, to, to, to develop them as a whole person, not just a tennis player, to help them have a well-being, not just well-tennis being. So to really have a broader outlook on them as a whole person. And I, and I don't know if that sometimes is lost with really excitable parents that that, that that see Wimbledon as the goal and again it's not easy and I know that these are things that probably people will be nodding to going yeah that's not me and it's like well maybe it's not you but be careful because you can quickly become that person it's toxic and it's very seductive and uh, and if you start to get some momentum of success you can easily fall into that difficult navigable road and then the relationship can really fracture and, and, and so we talk in the book and yeah, I would. Sorry, shameless plug, but it's, oh. oh yeah, let's let's put the link up since you're gonna show it. Yep. Um, one of the things we talk about in the book is something that Dr. David Emerald talks about, um, which is it's called the empowerment dynamic, where you when when the, like you said, when the coach, player, and parent, and you've probably all had it, have a great relationship. It's open, it's honest, it's clear, it's respectful. That's a real sweet spot. That's the magic of three, the magic of three, but. There's a black magic to it. And the, the black magic, the dark magic to it is when there um, there is something called a drama triangle. So when, when something plays out where someone is the persecutor, someone is the victim, and then the third person has to become the rescuer. Mm. So you see, you see it all the time. I'll give you an example. It's quite an odd example, but it's a really powerful one. Let's, let's go to the, the child is berating the parent at the side of the fence. I've seen that before at many tournaments <laughs> where, where the child is blaming the mum and dad for, for losing. Throwing a yeah. racket. Why are you even watching mum? Why are you young? Understand, you never played the game. So what happens then is the parent, <laughs> very difficult because their child is playing the game. So how can they intervene and deal with that? So what happens is the coach has to be the rescuer and say to the parent, look, don't worry, mum. Emotions are high. The stakes are high here. That you are unfortunately the um, the sponge to absorb that up right now. You know, take it, and we'll talk to them afterwards. But don't take it personally. Push back, pull back. Be more, be more resilient, etc. So, so that's a great example of a drama triangle playing out in reality. And and that's the that's the opposite to what I'm saying, which is we need the sweet spot of of respect, of openness, of discussion, of co-creation. And what I say is that everyone is the coach. And that's a really important narrative. It's, it's a bit different to what some people see mm. parent involvement. So, so, so a lot of coaches say, no, I'm the coach, you're the parent. That's your role, that's my role. It's a line in the sand and we never cross. And I don't believe that's true at all. I, I believe that many times the parent is the coach. And I believe many times the child is the coach, especially in our sport where you have to coach yourself. Um, so, so if you have that narrative, which is very different, that, that at some stage everyone's coaching themselves and coaching each other. But sometimes the parent is saying, hey, look, coach, he played at the weekend and his backhand really, he really struggled to play his backhand in the court. I think you need to work on that today because he's got another tournament on the weekend and he's going to really struggle to win points. He's going to lose far too many points if you don't work on the backhand. And sometimes a coach could be disappointed that the parent would even suggest such a thing. But the parent is actually the most recent interpreter of the child's current level of success and therefore is the best person to advise the coach what to do. 
because they're kind and 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 that's why i say like it's not always and it's not all the time and it's not on every level but sometimes the parent is coaching the coach and sometimes the coach is coaching the parent and sometimes the player is coaching the parent it happens all the time in the car on the way home the play oh mom you know i want to play that lefty today i was so much better i stood a bit further than the tram line i hit more cross court than i would go down the line it was and the parents like, wow, my child is talking tennis to another level of, of intelligence that I ever thought about. So if everyone's coaching everyone, that's a real empowerment dynamic. But when when coach is always king and parents left at the sideline and when the player is just a sponge to be talked at, you know, an empty vessel to be filled, I think that's a really dangerous drama triangle waiting to play out. And it happens a lot on the court when you see an aggressor in the 80s and 90s, when I thought most performance coaches thought that if they needed to be a good coach, they needed to shout at the kid, work harder, you don't want it enough, come on, show me your, show me your knuckles bleed. It was that kind of le- adolescent kind of pit bull uh, uh, sergeant major type coach. And um, of course, what we realise is that's absolute rubbish now. And there's so many ways to, to make people motivated and to unleash their full potential without being essentially a sergeant major bully. And uh, but in coaching, you, you can sometimes see it when, when an aggressive coach or an alpha male, perhaps, is very demanding of the child and, and the child starts to lose their confidence and starts to feel like they're a pushback to the coach's, you know, constant berating of, of, of their behavior or, or their attempts. And then the, 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 the parent has to rescue the child. Oh, don't worry. It's a coach. He's just trying to challenge you, trying to push you. But again, it's another drama triangle that we're really trying to avoid and bring out into the open in order to keep regenerating the relationship forward. Well, you keep talking about, you know, bringing things forward and and the relationships between the three parties. And one of the things that I talk about a lot on Parenting Aces is it's kind of the underlying, I guess, theme of why we even exist is the whole idea of communication. And if the coach clearly communicates his or her expectations to the parent and player. The player clearly communicates his or her expectations to the parent and coach, the parent, you know, then we have a better chance of having a successful relationship and reaching that sweet spot instead of having, you know, the bad spot, <laughs> the black yeah. hole. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, we, we call it in the book, the sour spot. There's a sweet spot and a sour spot. You want to reduce the amount of sour spot. Right. In, in tennis, you're going to have that because it's a turbulent ride and, and, and things come your way and you have to be so stress re- tolerant. It, it's unbelievable because you're going to lose way more than you win. Uh, and just that itself is psychologically tough. It's a brutal, it's, you know, it's, it's a real yeah. self-worth sport because even if you're second, you, you're a loser. So you could right. be second in the competition, but you're a loser. And, and, and there are very few sports that are that brutal in its competitive nature. But you're, you're dead right. And we talk about this in, in our in chapter five of the book, which is on behaving interventions, how you intervene differently to adapt to different personalities. Because we all know, everyone always says, well, you need to teach differently, adapt and connect with different types of children and parents and cultures and ethnicities. And, and, and I, I absolutely agree with that. And what we try and do is say, well, what does that mean on a practical level? So there are different types of coaching styles, different types of learning styles, and there are different types of push and pull behaviors that you have. And, and, and so sometimes I'm pushing my agenda on you as the coach, and that's fine. If I if I say to a child, look, I want you to tie your shoelace up, you're going to fall over. That's a kind of a push-type intervention. Of course, it's for their own safety, and therefore it's necessary. But sometimes I may pull. I'll just say, okay, how do you feel about that? And how, how did your match go today? And I won't say much more than that and just pull them into the conversation, mm. see what's in their, their headspace. Now, the, 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 the bit that we designed, which was a slightly different way of looking at it, was this whole idea of there's push, there's pull, and there's co-creating behaviours. So a co-creative coach is someone that's almost like, the analogy I use, this is a really good coach, in my opinion, Lisa. a good coach of players and a good coach of parents, someone that can share the dialogue equally on a date. So we have this program in, in the UK called First Dates. I don't know if you have, if you have it in, in America or not. I, I don't know. I've been married a really it. long time. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a really cool program because basically it's, it's filming people going on a first date in a restaurant. And um, uh, uh, well, it's really interesting because what you often see is a power balance that's often not shared. 
so the, the the female could talk the whole time and the guy's just asking question after question after question and then sometimes it's the reverse of that and the ones that seem to get it right are the ones that really share that that power balance it feels like a, a conversation not an interview it doesn't feel like someone just answering question after question mm -hmm. after question that it flows and, and I, i've seen coaches on the court that communicate in a way that it's like that where it's me and you and me then you you then me you then me me then you me, you then it's not the coach and then the players just being machine gun information for an hour the coach goes home tired the player goes home absolutely zapped with a learning overload you can't even begin to imagine and um, and uh, and I see it with coaches and parents in the car park. Sure. <laughs> and so, so the communication to me, the first bit is that it's shared, that we have an equal respect for each other's time, space, continuum of the dialogue. And and if it's not shared, then I really believe a drama triangle will play out at some stage. It's interesting because um, before the pandemic, I used to just record these podcasts using an audio only platform and I would get an email after I was done recording a podcast and it would say, Lisa Stone spoke this many minutes and Simon Wheatley spoke that many minutes. And my goal every time I would record would be to have me at 25% or below, right? Because people aren't tuning in to listen to me. They can go to parentingaces.com and know what my philosophy is. They're tuning in and listening to hear my guests speak. And I had to really work on that over, well, it's now in my 10th year, but to, wow. to shut up and let my guests speak. Um, but it's that same notion of, you know, sharing the dialogue, making sure that everybody feels like they've had the opportunity to say what they need to say, but also to take a step back and absorb what the other person is saying. And I think as parents, it, it that's really challenging, especially on that car ride home to not bam, 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 machine gun, as you said, at our kids um, about that last match, you know, and and our kids are going to shut down if we do that. Yeah, it's, well, it, I think it must it must be very tough. I think it's linked to a lot of people's temperament and personality traits, and therefore sure. you have to you have to work really hard on these skills if you if your natural. I mean, my natural temperament is to talk a lot, so I, I'm like you, Lisa. I have to really withdraw. And, and, and skillfully work on that because I want to talk a lot. I want to talk fast. I want to inspire people. I want to be, come across passionate. But of course, your strength can tip over into a weakness if you use it too much. So, so aggress you know, plain speaking can turn into aggression. Right. You know, and, and I think, I, I think it's important too for parents to hear that you're going to mess up, right? You're not always going to do this perfectly. And that's okay. It doesn't cause irreparable damage if you mess up every now and then. It causes irreparable damage only if you don't acknowledge that you mess up and, you know, that you neglect to try and repair things. I, I think sorry is, is, is one of the most useful words <laughs> in life because it does still mean a lot when people say sorry it means a lot so if you say, if you've given your child a tough time in that car on the way home or on the way to school or on the way to practice or on the side of the court j just to put your hands around their shoulders and go hey look i'm sorry actually i've had a really rubbish day at work and that wasn't me talking that was the, my annoyance at the client because that's what it really is when, when it's your projection from other experiences that are manifesting through the day that you can't show your emotions at because it would be unprofessional work to do that. So then what happens is someone's going to get it. It's either husband, child, next door neighbor, the person on the TV you're shouting at, someone's going to get it. And it's just a shame that if one person becomes the victim all the time and you don't recognize it, it's like at some stage recognize it and withdraw and just say, so, you know what? I was tough on you and I didn't mean to be, and I'm really sorry. And I'll try not to do that again. That, that's at least one thing you can do to, to try and rectify the, the, the errors in your way, because you're not perfect and nor is your child, nor is your husband and nor is your wife. And, 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 and we can do things to, to make things right. So you're right. You're going to make errors. You're going to make right. errors. And I think it's important for our children to 
see us make errors and then make attempts to fix them and apologize for them because they're going to make errors too. And we don't want them to feel badly that, you know, I, I mean, I can't tell you how many matches I've watched and, you know, standing at the end of the fence or the end of the court and hearing the kid between points coming to the fence and saying, I suck. Why do I play tennis? I'm terrible at this. You know, I don't deserve to be here. We don't want our kids saying that stuff about themselves. It's it's upsetting. And I can tell you, even now, you know, it's not my kid playing anymore. But whenever I hear a kid say that stuff, it just, you know, gets me right in the heart. I mean, it's terrible. Yeah. And I think it's terrible because we know life is hard. Life is hard for many reasons, and it's harder for some people more than others as well. It's an unequal society we live in, and you know some people have it really tough, and some people lose their parents, mother or father, or can't. You know, life can be really tricky. So when we hear young people beating themselves up outwardly, we know that inwardly there's something even deeper at play. That they really lack confidence, they really lack with coping mechanisms, they really lack with resilience, they, and therefore. There's something in, in learning which I think is really useful to, 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 to share with your, your viewers. And it was done by, I think, Dr. Chris Argyle, who's at Harvard University, far smarter man than me. And he talked about that in life, learning was around on three levels, single loop learning, double loop learning, and triple loop learning. So I'll, I'll give you an example of each one. So single loop learning is this whole idea of the correction of mistakes, simple mistakes. So if a parent is really struggling at the side of the court to watch their child, one of the ways you could solve that problem is don't watch, right? That's one <laughs> yeah. way. Don't watch. Yeah. Don't watch, so you're not going to feel the same. Stay in the car. But the problem is, is it doesn't really solve the problem because the parents still, if they do come to watch at some stage, will still have the same patterns of behaviors, reflexes, etc. So, so that's single loop learning. But, but double loop learning is to really understand, well, why are you, you as a parent feeling like that? Well, because the question I can ask you, Lisa, is why is it making you feel really upset? Because I, it actually might be, it, the kid might go through that like this. Yeah. You know, as simple as you losing your keys. You're angry, where are my keys, where are my keys? But you get over it 10 seconds later. So for right. the kids, they may they may be saying that, but then the next point, they're like Roger Federer focus, you know? It's like, yeah. so, so do you focus on the, the negative affirmations that they're saying outwardly, or do you focus on their ability to reset, refocus, and play the next point unbelievably well? So it's like, who's it affecting more, them or you, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so double loop learning really challenges the, well, why is it happening in the first place? You know, why are you getting so agitated and frustrated? And it's because you basically hate to see your child lose. And that's because when you were a kid, you you lost and uh, things and you didn't like feeling rubbish and lacking self-worth, etc. So so that triple loop learning comes in there. It's like, well, learning how to learn. Well, perhaps you should sit and watch the match and write down a hundred things in that match that you love about your child. Ooh, I love that. Hundred things. Love it when they smiled when they won the point. Love it when they shook hands at the end. Love it uh, the way they bounced on the court at the start. I loved it the way they had their bag packed and the drinks bottles at the side. I love the way they cleaned the lines and they didn't let the umpire do. Love the way they picked up the litter. I love the way that, you know. It's like you can find hundred things. I love that. Things, yeah. Twenty things, but it, it will put you in such a better frame of mind than judging the 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 the. the, the you know the flow chart of the match, a winner point, loser point, winner point, because your emotions go on the roller coaster. And if you can stay stable through the roller coaster, you are going to be so much more powerful to your child than you can ever believe. And you're going to be healthier yourself mentally, and you're going to have a better ride home, win or lose. Um, and, but but you have to work at that. It's a skill to to distance yourself from the match to actually be a to, to zoom in on it from a, a greater angle and go, I can I can think and feel and reframe my my behavior differently by the way I'm thinking and, and judging the match. So something like that's really simple, but but it can be so useful and helpful to every, all the, all the parties concerned. For sure. It reminds me um, when I, I took my first daughter to college and, and we had a parent orientation, you know, the kids were doing their thing and the parents all gathered in this huge auditorium and uh, people, different people from the university spoke with us. And one of, one of the people that spoke said, just going to give you a heads up. If this is your first time bringing a kid to college and, you know, they had us raise our hands, if this is your first child going off to school. And um, if this is your first time, you're going to get the phone call where your kid is either crying or yelling and screaming, telling you how awful it is, how this happened and that happened, and they need you to come get them and bail them out. And, 
you know, how could you have sent them there and how horrible their life is and all of these things. And then you're going to hang up from the call and you're going to feel awful because you're concerned that, oh my God, what have I done to my poor child? I've put them in this lion's den, but your kid's going to hang up the phone and go, okay, dumped all that onto the next, right? <laughs> it's brilliant. It's a brilliant story, isn't it? And it's so true. Yeah. It's so true. I, I did that. I remember I, had, I was three months into university and I remember it was just before Christmas going, I'm so ready to come home. I'm done with this. I don't know if I want to stay. Um, and then, of course, I was back home for two weeks. So I really wanted to get out of my parents' house. <laughs> I'm not going back to that. That's going backwards. So, so I, I can resonate with that. And it's so true. Things affect people differently for different periods of time. You know, there's that. It, I call it the transition curve. I think sometimes people call it the grievance cycle, where you go through something happens, and then you go through denial and anger, frustration, and then acceptance, and you move through that cycle at different speeds. It's in my opinion that the ones that are most resilient, the people that are the most resilient in life, go through that cycle very fast. Hmm. Interesting. Because they, they go, but the people that that stick in denial. And, you know, you've seen those people that like lose their job and they, they, they still get up in the morning, get dressed and walk to the office and like hang around for the day and come home. They can't tell their wives and husbands they've lost their job. Right. They're still in that denial phase. And it's a really dark place to be. People that are emotionally fractured uh, and, 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 and are in a, a negative loop, belief loop that, that, that they find it very difficult to get out of. And, and if we can teach our children that look, bad things are going to happen, you're going to feel these things. These are emotions and they're genuine emotions and it's okay to feel them, but let's get through them quick. And here are some techniques to get through them quick. So for that parent on, on the side of the court that's listening to their child with these negative affirmations, it might be that the parent, I really believe in first aid mentally and first aid physically. If you fall over and cut your leg, Lisa, you put a plaster on it, right? Yeah. Well, the, the mental- all those band-aids. <laughs> band-aids, sorry, yeah. <laughs> You Americans, you really did ruin I, our language. Didn't you? I know, I know. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, it's it's, it's uh, why is it garbage and, and trash, not not the bins? You know, we always say take out the bins and everything. Anyway, sorry, digress. Um, where was I? Where was I? When you fall and cut your leg, you put a plaster on it. Leg, you put a plaster on it, and 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 it, that's physical first aid. But but mental first aid is well, what are the things you do when you're et up, anxious, depressed? It's like you breathe. You you take the time to. It's what Djokovic does after a long point that's a gladiatorial 30-shot rally. You see him going, <laughs> you see him do that to, to really release all these endorphins and, and get and feel the energy come out of his fingers. And you see him doing Dominic Team does this all the time with his fingers. These little micro behaviors, which I don't say that they should become the, the rituals of everyone, but they are useful behavioral patterns that that, that help people to deal with the the stress of our sport and I, and I don't see the parent problem is the children can do it the children can be set up and then get a backhand and get rid of it all release reset go for it again some people don't some people stay in this negative affirmation cycle because they they don't move through the transition curve fast enough they still are in denial they're still in anger about the point from five minutes ago so they, they've got to get through that transition curve fast and I've got all lots of examples of this in the book but, but but with parents, it's not so easy because they have to sit there and, and be measured mm. and calm and, and not give off anything and not be too, not be too over-aroused, not be too under-aroused. So to get that peak performance state as not just the player, but as the parent as well, is something you have to work at. And, and why not work at it? Because you're going to be more effective as a parent. So sure. all, all these techniques, I think, are, are really good to explore, uh, you know, for both the player and the parent. Yeah, I, I'm a huge proponent of yoga. I'm a huge proponent of breath work. I'm a huge proponent of meditation, uh, not just for the players, but for the parents, too, because, you know, unfortunately, you can't buy a cocktail at a junior tennis tournament to calm yourself when your kid's in a particularly stressful match. You have to find natural ways to calm yourself down, um, though we all know those parents who bring in the coffee mugs filled with their white wine or <laughs> I, I won't tell. Uh, but you're right. But I, I remember once a coach said to me, and, I, and it stuck with me this forever, that the breathing is the antidote to choking. And I thought, well, what a brilliant phrase that is because it's so true. If, if you're choking and, and essentially when you're, when you're stressed as a parent of the tournament, because things are not going the way that, that you think they should be, 
or that your child thinks they should be, then, then the first thing to do is just to breathe and, and to really feel yourself not choking and, and not losing it. It's to try and stay measured, stay calm, stay present. It's not about you, it's about them. And, and, and those those things we all know are correct, but in the moment they're not so easy to actually achieve. And therefore, if you can just say, right, four, five, six deep breaths a minute. And, and for, for yoga people, they must be laughing at me going, yeah, we do that all the time. It's like, yeah, but do you do it in the right setting? Right. Yes, you, you do it with your little mat when you roll out at 6 a.m. and <laughs> exactly. your little egg white omelette. That's great. Well done for breakfast. But, but unfortunately, are you doing it? at 4 p.m. in the afternoon when your son's it's one set all and it's five all and they just lost their serve, are you doing it then? Because it's, 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 that's when you need it. You don't need it at 6 a.m. You've learned that one. That ship sailed. It's here when you need it. You can't do it in this context. In that context, it's easy. There's no pressure. There's no parents. There's no there's no USTA national coach watching your child to see if they're going to get picked to the regionals, you know? Right. That's when it needs to be good. And often we, it's not so easy in those situations. That's, I mean, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, there's a reason that, you know, you call your yoga practice a practice. It, you're practicing on your mat to be able to take those skills into your real life and put them to work when you need them. Like that example that Simon just gave, you know, five all in the third, your kid just lost a serve and, you know, the match is on the line now. Um it's a huge challenge and nobody said this was easy. And I think Simon, you know, having you out there educating coaches and educating parents and players as well about the fact that it's not easy. There's no shortcut for any of us, whether we're the player, the parent or the coach, we all have to put in the work in order to make this a successful relationship and a successful journey. Yeah, and well, it's what a great way to you know to segue into that because I want to share a, a little story with you because we, everyone talks about the car journey home as this kind of evil route to death for everyone, and, and it can be. Yeah, had lots of those. <laughs> it can be really depressing for all parties concerned, and even if you win, it can be depressing for some reason. That's the thing that's interesting about tennis. But at the same time, I want to share a story with a friend of mine, Simon Pender. I know he won't mind me telling you this. He was a good player. He got to about 550 in the world ATP. So he was a really good player. And then injuries got in his way, so he didn't um, he didn't pursue it full, full time. His father was a great guy, very, very calm. His temperament was very placid, jokey, jokey Cornishman. And in Cornwall, they're fishermen, people. They're really cool guys. And he always says to me, you know, the bit I miss the most is the travel with my son in the car. He said every other parent in the teenage years was watching their children going off to the cinema or to nightclubs or you know drinking on the streets. Not my, not me. I got to spend extra time with my child. I got to travel. And in Cornwall, if you're in Cornwall, look on the map of England. You're right yeah. down the bottom of the country. You've got to drive three hours just to get out of one county, uh, which in America is probably not a long way, but it's a long way in England. So, so he would have to travel all up and down the country every weekend to play tournaments because his son was good. And he says the bits that I really missed um, when when Simon left to go to the National Academy was me and him in the car, listening to songs, putting the cassette tape in, singing along to songs, chatting about life. He didn't know anything about tennis, didn't want to talk about tennis really. And and they had such a powerful, close relationship. And and that's just an example of, I mean, how good would that be if every parent would have You're that making experience? me choke up. You're totally yeah, making me well, choke up because still to this day, my son's 24 now. Um, I'll be driving in my car. A song will come on my, my shuffle on my phone and it'll be a song that, you know, we used to play ad nauseum on our drives to, to and from tournaments and, you know, talk about or you know, my son was very into rap music when it went in his teen years and and certain artists will come up on my shuffle that, you know, I haven't heard since those years. And all of a sudden it'll pop up and I'm like, oh, my God. And I'll text him, you know, I'll I'll like quickly at a stoplight. I'll screenshot the song playing on on my phone. I'll send him a text. I'm like, do you remember driving to such and such tournament? And, you know, and he'll text me back and, you know, it'll start this whole conversation and it is it's such a gift to have that time with your child and and your friend is absolutely correct in that most parents 
you know, if they're not involved in this sport or some other individual sport where it's on the parent to get the kid to their competitions, they don't get that gift. Yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and I think it's often framed really badly because we often we like the negative stories more that they're. they're they're more emotive than negative the tough car journey home and the crying and the tears and not speaking to each other and the parents shouting those stories make for good reading but the reality is i really believe that most parents with their children have great journeys to the events and great journeys in the way home because because most parents do like their children <laughs> and they don't they don't want to stay angry at them for very long so uh, and, and most children want to get to know their parents at some stage and that's a really nice moment when that happens when Kids start asking you, well, how did you meet dad, mum? And, and how did you, where, where did you go to that college? And where, where were you from? What did your mum do? That's a really great, the conversations that happen in the adolescent years through going to tournaments don't happen around the dinner table. I don't really know why. I haven't worked that through enough, but they're different conversations. Because you're not eye to eye, face to face in the car. There is this either true barrier if your kid's in the backseat or this invisible barrier because the driver is looking straight ahead and the child oftentimes is looking straight ahead. And it's easier to have those conversations when you're not eye to eye. Yeah. You know what? I haven't even thought about that, but you're dead right. Just looking forwards, talking, listening to each other, but not having to feel the reaction so much. Just It's like having a phone call as opposed to a face-to-face conversation. It's easier to talk about difficult topics in a phone call. And now right. in a text message, you know, even easier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. WhatsApp. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, it's so true, isn't it? Yeah. And so I, you know, I do feel very lucky uh, that I had those years with my son. I was sad when they ended. Um, that was one of the hardest things for me, uh, you know, when he went off to college and, and we didn't have those weekly drives to tournaments. But um but I treasure that. And I think, you know, parents, if you're caught up in the winning and losing, the rankings, the UTR, the recruiting, which coach is where and who's winning and why isn't my kid, blah, 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 you're missing an opportunity to recognize and appreciate the true gift that this sport gives us as parents. We, we talk a lot about the gifts that our kids receive from playing tennis. But sometimes yeah. we forget to talk about the gifts that we as parents get from it. Yeah. It's, you know, in the book, in, in our chapter two in the book, we talk about um, the life cycle of, of, of human beings. So it's like childhood, adolescence, adulthood, um, you know, early adulthood, senior adulthood, and then senior citizen. So these are the stages you go through in your life. And in every single stage, you go through iterations of what we call joining, achieving, and moving on. So you go to you go to kindergarten, you join it, you achieve, you move on to the next school. Join, achieve, move on. It's like a relationship with a, with a girlfriend, boyfriend. You know, you join, achieve, and move on. And and the key bit to it is how you approach each of those phases, joining, achieving, and moving on, will determine the success in the next phase. Mm. And everyone knows that. We know that as adults now. You've had a bad breakup with an ex-girlfriend, boyfriend. And then you go into the next relationship, not quite work through what's happened in the past one. And the, the current one is affected by what happened in the past. Right. And that's what happens in tennis. It's like if you if you have a bad breakup with a coach, which happens a lot in tennis, you know, it's it's people don't end the relationship well, is, is my general cursory glance at how contracting happens with, with tennis coaches and players' parents. It's often engineered by the parent, often for the wrong reason or for the right reason, but in the wrong way. And therefore, it's done badly. Everyone and all the good work that's been achieved is often lost in that period. Hopefully it can be got back in the in the future, but often it's not. It's damaged and severed for life. And, and that's a great shame because everyone helps everyone to be better through their life. Yeah. Uh, and if you can, so, so the joining phase is a really important one. It's like contract. This is what I stand for. This is what I stand against. This is what I'm going to do as a coach. This is what I'm not going to do. I have a young family. I can't come to every tournament to see your child play. If you're looking for a coach that, you want that from i'm not the right person for you and people don't contract concrete like timings mm. um, money this is what the money is going to be if you want me to watch at the tournament the weekend i'm sorry but it's not it, it's pay-per-view you need you know you need to pay me for my time but this I, I is that whole communication thing simon this is it gets back to that and 
you know, in my experience, coaches and parents are really bad at requiring each other to communicate clearly their wants and needs and abilities. And I think we have got to do better at asking that of each other. You know, if you're the coach and and I'm considering hiring you, you as the coach need to be asking me, what are your expectations of me as your child's coach? You know, yes. what are your child's goals and and what do you see my role and where do you see your role in helping your child get there? We as parents need to ask the questions that you just posed, you know, are you going to come watch my kid at the tournament? How much is it going to cost me? Are you going to provide me with regular updates on my kid's progress? Is there a fee for that? You know, we need to be having these conversations, but, but typically we're not real good at it. Well, what the problem is, Lisa, is that the, the people start to have those requests and demands too long down in the relationship, too further exactly. down. Exactly. So- and then they go, well, we didn't we didn't agree on that at the start. So why do you expect me to come and watch your coach? So, and then the drama triangle plays out. Rescue yeah. a victim. Oh, no, mom, I really like my coach. I don't want to leave that coach. Well, he's not coming to watch you at tournaments, so it's, it's not working. So, well, but it is. I'm getting better. So, so all of a sudden, these things could have been avoided if you'd have joined more more professionally. And I don't mean a con- – I call it contracting, but I don't mean a legal contract. It's not something you're going to yeah. take people to court with. But, but it could be a written piece of paper. This is what I stand for. This is what I stand against. Um, I will never speak about your private issues with your family. I never want you to badmouth me as the coach at tournaments, as the parent. Can you sign up to that? I sign up to that. And the player as well. So I have a little yeah. contract for the player. And the play, the play contract is um, you're going to come to every lesson with openness, with diligence, with with um, a passion to work hard. You're going to come and you're going to really try to learn because we're you're going to help us to help you. That's what children don't realize. It's like right. help us to help you. You can help me be open be exploratory, um, be, be forgiving, you know, and, and be patient because we'll help you more. And so everyone has responsibilities, you know. Right. And understanding that that sometimes you're not able to meet those responsibilities. There are going to be days in, yeah. in your example where a kid's going to have had a really bad day at school or, you know, maybe broken up with a boyfriend or girlfriend and, you know, they come to practice and and they're not open. They're not bringing their best self. And and it's OK if it just happens every now and then it's not okay if it happens every time but if there's a degenerative cycle or a block and the child's week on week it's like we have to bring that to the table people don't bring it to the table so they let it manifest and then it blows up in some way and then then the only the only solution is to run away yeah i need a new coach new coach new coach and sometimes a new coach is the right answer but in my opinion and this is no scientific research in my opinion 90% 90% of the times when a parent player leaves a coach, it's for the wrong reasons or the wrong time. Mm. And, and, and I would really challenge every parent that's ever done that to really be honest with themselves and go, was it the right thing to do at the right time? It could have been the right thing to do, but was it right now? No, they were doing their exams. We should have had stability. Shouldn't have moved then. Uh, is it the right time? No, we just moved to a new city. It, it, too much change or whatever. I don't know. But, but I, I often feel that a lot of the time – if they would have worked through their mess, that they actually would have come out stronger and they'd have, everyone would have been better for it. Yeah. My friend of mine is a coach in England, has an academy, and he, he has this lovely saying about getting the fish out on the table. And he gets this big fish and he puts it on the table. He's right, <laughs> what do you want to say? Let's get the fish out of the table. I don't care what you've got to say, hit it, hit it to me hard. I don't care how hard it is to listen to, I, I want to hear it. Yeah. And I think there is something nice about that because – so many people are so scared. They're, they're so fearful of conflict. They don't say anything until it gets really bad, and then they just sever the tie. And it's like it could have been worked through. I think a lot of people in divorce are like that. People get divorced yeah. because they let manifest, manifest, and then by the time they get to the divorce, where they could have saw a therapist, it's like it's too little, too late. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry about my lighting. Something just weird just happened. I'm trying to make adjustments here. But anyway, um, no, that's that's all absolutely true. And it's information that I think it's important for parents to know and understand. And it's information that it's important for coaches to know and understand. And, you know, you're in the coaching education arena. And I love that you're sharing that message with coaches and 
I'm hopeful that they're taking it to heart because I think it will make them better coaches, which will in turn help us to be better tennis parents and help our kids become better tennis players, but also better human beings, right? Um, you know, learning these communication skills and and for kids to be able to be a witness to adults communicating clearly and effectively and efficiently only helps them, you know, become good communicators as they grow up and will serve them well throughout their lives. So I think it's it's a it's a crucial skill. Yeah, I mean, I work in coach education mainly. I do some consultancy with parents and help navigate um, the journey with them. They want help. They want my expertise and intelligence on tennis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do that privately, and I'm very happy to reach out to people if, if they want my services. But, but, but with coaches, it is really about making them better human beings. Because if they're better human beings, then they're actually going to be better coaches, and then they're going to be better um, working with parents. And so, so I've always believed the best way to get your players better is to get yourself better. So, mum and dad, the best way to get your child better in life is to make yourself better. Read more, speak more, um, write more speak to other people, diversify your skill set, just get better. You're not as good as you think you could be. And therefore just keep working at, at yourself. And, and I really believe that will rub off. And you know, you throw, you throw a pebble in the pond and you've got no idea how those ripples really reach out to your neighborhood, to your community, to the schools, to your work colleagues. It can go on and leave a generation of, of meaningful work and a, and a real tangible legacy. We have a whole chapter in the book on how can you can leave a legacy that's beyond the sport. In what you do and of course using tennis as the vehicle as the driver but it's mm-hmm. so much more than that sure. you know even like when even sharing lifts with other parents and families what that can bring and the community and you have no idea on how much the sovereignty of the individual has an impact on the community yeah absolutely well simon wheatley it has been a sheer pleasure speaking with you and learning from you. you today um trying to make myself better. So I appreciate <laughs> you sharing your knowledge. And um, for those that are interested in reaching out to you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah. So um, on the website that you sent in the link, that's where they can buy the book. We can ship all over the world. Um, I think Here it's it a nice one more time. Oh, thank you. It's, it's, it's a book of seven essays. So you can read each chapter is, a, is an essay you can reach every chapter as a sorry you can read every chapter as an essay and on its own or you can read it as a whole entire book so it, it is linked but there's no need to read the whole thing in saying that it's a short it's only 240 pages you can read it in a weekend it's, it's not an overwhelming book there's a lot of references and, and from, from good players and from parents of players um, Lynette Federer um, Felix Allison's father Ash Barty's father there's a lot of great messaging from from players Katie Swan who I helped work with when she was a young girl she's in our fed cup team top 200 mm-hmm. in the world um so so she, she was someone that i worked with from a very young age um and her coach in the triangle really as a consultant and and she gives a lovely message about how she works with her coach julian pico french french coach and talked about how julian whose who's partner sadly passed away and was still coaching katie on the tour and had to manage the difficulties of the mm-hmm. coach's life which we never we never so many people have got so many things going on in their life. We have no idea the impact it has on their work. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's some really dark things going on in the world uh, to people. And, and right now with COVID and the global pandemic, you know, people are in a really difficult state. So being patient and empathetic is a really important thing to, to be aware of as a parent and a player. Um, sure. But, but if, if you want to reach out to me privately, um, if I can help you in any way as coaches or parents, it's easy, Simon Wheatley Tennis at iCloud.com. Um, Simon Wheatley Tennis at iCloud.com. I'm really happy to. to Wait, at what.com? At iCloud.com. iCloud.com. Okay, I'm just going to put that up on the screen too. Um, it's your accent. Sometimes I <laughs> miss words. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> or my accent. No, no, it's mine. It's mine. <laughs> so here's Simon's email address. It's on the screen now. It will also be in the show notes. So make sure you check that out and you can reach out to him with any questions or concerns. And I will tell you from experience, Simon is very responsive on social media as well. So be sure to follow him on Twitter and it's at the sweet spot, right? On Twitter. Yeah, you've got I, I, Facebook is, is better. If you want to add me on Facebook, Simon Wheatley, I'm always posting things on there that, that may be of interest to you. Um, uh, my partner does the uh, Twitter, and I've forgotten the handle on that. <laughs> I apologize. You'll probably find it, the sweet spot. The picture of the book, you'll see it somewhere there. 
I'm, I'm putting these in uh, also up. So uh, here we go. Here is his Twitter at the sweet spot. And then on Facebook, Simon Wheatley, you'll be able to find him. And again, he has been incredibly responsive to me on both those platforms and via email as well. So if you have questions, I urge you to reach out again, Simon, it's been a, a pleasure to speak with you and learn from you today. I, I really appreciate it. And I hope you'll come back again. We, I'm sure have lots more we can talk about. Lisa, thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for what you're doing with this, this platform. It's, um, it's so needed. It's so needed. People, everyone in the world that's involved in tennis to any level that has children playing um, and parents will be going through turbulent times at times, they should sign up to this platform because it's going to be a great addition to helping them through it. So well done. And, and I'll be sure to promote it amongst my, um, my work colleagues and, 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 and network of people as well. So thank you. And yeah, invite me anytime you want. I love talking about tennis. So please do. Awesome. Yeah, well, we'll have you back for sure. To my audience, thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time on Parenting Aces. I'm Lisa Stone, and you've been listening to the Parenting Aces podcast. For tennis parents, by a tennis parent. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us and write a review on iTunes. For more information on navigating the junior and college tennis journey, please visit us online at ParentingAces.com. Thanks for tuning in and sharing us with your tennis community.